0: Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more.
1: Welcome. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and you're listening to Chef's Story. I had a very interesting week last week. I was in San Francisco and had the great opportunity to be able to interview Daniel Patterson at his Qua restaurant in the private room during the day. The interview was so fascinating, and he had me mesmerized that I didn't watch the time. It was not the usual 40 minutes that I calibrate so closely, but it actually extended to 112 minutes. And there was nothing I felt I could edit out of the piece. So, listeners, you're very lucky. We've got a two-part series uh, with Daniel Patterson. And I just want to introduce him a little bit to those of you who might not know him and his cooking. Uh, he's originally from Massachusetts, which you'll hear. Uh, but he he really is an iconoclast on the way he receives his restaurant and who he's cooking for. He says that he's really all about the joy of cooking for others, and he truly is, and he goes to pains for it. I just want to, he has this beautiful new book that's come out uh, about Kwa, it's by Fiden Press, P-H-A-I-D-O-N, and it's Kwa, Stories and Recipes by Daniel Patterson. It's the stories that grab me because the recipes are fabulous. The f- s- photography is sensational. But he puts it all in a context. Let me read you a little bit to give you a feel. Um, at Qua they make their own butter, but they were inspired by Sue young Scanlon. He says, 12 years ago, Sue young Scanlon showed up at Elizabeth Daniel with a select, that Elizabeth Daniel was his restaurant, with a selection of extraordinary cheeses to taste. We became friends, and since then, she has been one of our closest and most important collaborators. At the end of the first year, Su Young gave me a small piece of butter that she had made. It was extraordinary. It was also not available for purchase. Her entire production of extra cream went to make butter for the French laundry. It was Thomas Keller who asked Su Young to make butter in the first place. So I went to visit her at the dairy, and she showed me how to make butter. The next week, we started making our own butter. It was an important development for the kitchen. This sounds silly, even sentimental, but butter making caused me to start looking at other ingredients and processes that we took for granted, like baking our own bread and making our own vinegars. At first, we made sweet butter, until a well-known butter producer visited the restaurant. She sniffed at our butter, calling it too simple. She was right which we discovered after she was kind enough to send us some of her culture. We began to culture our butter and also used the starter to make creme fresh. Eventually, we learned to age the butter, a process that Brett Cooper helped to develop. We've improved our butter making a little bit every year. I think our butter now is better than what is commercially available in our area. We control the process carefully to get exactly the taste and texture that we like and more than the butter itself there's something else that is important about the process a feeling that's hard to explain that has to do with mastery of a craft and something more you feel at Qua, now this is Dorothy speaking <laughs> that every single ingredient has that sense of depth and understanding from the chef and the beauty on the plate um, I want to talk about one of his fabulous plates, the young carrots roasted in hay with aged sheep's milk, uh, sheep's milk cheese and radish powder. He, he, it really is a dish, and I, let me quote from his book, "This dish is about a moment sometime after summer surrenders, when the harvest is done and the farms are muddy. There's wind-blown detritus scattered about the neat rows of tender greens given way to masses of sodden earth. The way the plate looks, messy but still beautiful, reminds me of walking farms just before winter. We cook with alfalfa and clover haze. We also use sprouts from the same plants, the first tender growth mingled with an infusion of dead husks. Radishes are dried and ground into a pink, subtly pungent powder which blankets the plate on top the sweet smell of cooked carrots and the nutty complexity of a shaved sheep's milk cheese when the dish is finished the aroma is evocative of pasture of loamy soil and smoke it's almost enough to make me fall in love again wow here you go I present you Daniel Patterson Well, hello, and welcome to Chef Story. This is Dorothy Hamilton from the International Culinary Center, and today I'm with Daniel Patterson at Qua in San Francisco. It's just incredible to be here, um, just to be in Qua and to get the whole sensibility. um, Very excited, and thank you for having me here, Daniel.
2: Oh, thanks so much for coming. I'm really excited to be on the show. So,
1: so let me let me just jump. Right into it. I mean, you're you're one of the most uh, well-known, if not most respected, sh- chefs in America, but especially in in San Francisco. Um, I know you grew up in Massachusetts, and uh, so tell us. Well, I mean, uh, where did you grow up in Massachusetts? What was your what was your food history there? Did you come from a food family?
2: Um, y- y- yes and no. I mean, it wasn't. I would say. Um, Probably more yes, because um, for for a couple reasons, uh, my I did have an aunt who was a caterer, so there was some professional um, uh, influence. Mm-hmm. But um, for the most part, you know, my uh, I grew up in Manchester, which is a small town on the north coast of, um, of Massachusetts. It's right near uh, Gloucester. Uh, which is a very famous fishing town. And, and my, my earliest, um, very primal memories are of, of the ocean, the way it smells, um, even swimming, like the way it tastes afterwards when you get some, some salt water, you breathe it in, and then you know, later for almost like hours you would taste the lingering scent of the ocean. And so that was, that was part of my, my, my upbringing, my, my sensory experience, that now I don't think I could live away from the ocean. Um, and and we used to um, we used to eat things, lobster, and a lot of seafood, and things that were just part of our part of our area. Um, my my family on, on my mother's side is uh, was from Russia, um, so I grew up with Russian Jewish food, basically that had been Americanized. And this is kind of a um, it, it's a it's a kind of food that I think a lot of people on the East Coast grew up with. Where the sensibility of Eastern Europe got distilled through this idea, of, through kind of Americanization, and so the, the portions were a little bit bigger and the flavors were a little bit more dramatic. But but at the end of the day, I grew up eating tongue and borscht and and um, a lot of things that I think for a lot of kids weren't very familiar, but very earthy flavors, a lot of acidity. Um, that was kind of from my, my grandmother was was an extraordinary cook, and that was. Um, that was what I grew up uh, kind of thinking about. Um, I, I was lucky, my, my mother's a French teacher, my parents were, were kind of francophiles, so I spent some time in, in France growing up as well. So I've kind of um, I, I learned a little bit um, just by being there, about how people shop and, and how people engage with food. And I, mean, I think the amazing thing about that experience for me, about being in France, was seeing um, how people respected the table. And the the experience of sitting down among family and friends and and really enjoying a meal and how central that was to their their experience of the world and and that wasn't true growing up in america as much and 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 um you know my parents got divorced when i was quite young and so we didn't have that same um sense of unity around uh, around the table and uh, my mother was a very good cook um
1: how so how old were you when you went to france Uh, four
2: six eight twelve so a few times a few times
1: and and so what was your home dinner like even if your mother was good what would be a normal Wednesday night
2: dinner you're, you're asking me to go back a lot of years um I would say that uh usually very healthy we always had a a garden um, she used to make her own yogurt, things like that. Your mother?
1: Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Wow. But this
2: is the, the 70s, you know? Mm-hmm. When they, you remember those little yes. machines and she used to. Yeah. Yeah. And um, uh, we never had any, um, any processed food in our house. So that was like, like when I found Cool Whip when I was like 12 years old I I like, freaked out. I'm like, this is awesome. This is the best <laughs> thing I've ever seen. I, I just had never seen anything like it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sugar cereals. I'd come back to my house. I'd be like, you know, I'd stay over a friend's house. I'd come back. Oh, I found this, like... And my mom would be like, yeah, no. That's, that's not coming in our house. So, um, so I grew up eating, you know, decent food. Mm-hmm. Like, real food. Like, mm-hmm. my mom used to cook out of Julia Child, stuff like that. Um,
1: that's pretty sophisticated. Yeah. You had the, the, the Russian ethnic, you know, depth and flavor there. but um, so, And connecting and, and put that with Julia Child and and no processed food. Because even in the 70s, people were still eating Swanson TV dinner. And uh, And I'm not
2: saying I did not eat any Swanson TV dinners by any stretch of the imagination. My father was more like a throw a pork chop in a bag with a shake and bake. And yeah. Yeah, That's so true. I mean...
1: Oh, you got the best of all worlds there.
2: And it's not like I never went to McDonald's or anything either, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, my mother had two young kids and there are some times where you just pull over and you... you Shove a hamburger at them and get them to shut up for a few minutes. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, you know, and that's something I see it now. Now that I have little kids, how how hard it is to to avoid that sort of thing. But back then, it, there was there was not the stigma attached to it that there is now. Mm-hmm. And uh, she didn't do it because I mean it just didn't happen very often. But it was like a treat kind of. So it mm-hmm. wasn't like I had no exposure to mm-hmm. to mainstream the way that mainstream Americans. Eight. It wasn't like I was totally out of the loop, but my day to day was a little bit different than that.
1: So, when it seems like you were always conscious of food, then the you know, that it wasn't mindless at all, and it, and it was. Effing. When did you start getting very serious about food, of, of thinking of it
2: professionally? Oh, I mean, in retrospect, if you're asking me to drag through like what happened, you know, 40 or 35 years ago, then I'm finding these little pieces. But um, I think it's funny because um, I always had this interest. And I think looking back, it's hard to tell exactly where it came from. But I think part of it was uh for my grandmother who who is a who's a wonderful cook you know my my mother and her family would say that she wasn't as good a cook as her mother (laughs) but she had this she had this very special ability to communicate emotion through food and so i spent a lot of time with my grandparents when i was growing up and uh, i spent a lot of time in the kitchen with her and she was very she's a very quiet person um a little bit uh um, a little bit on the sad side and not always able to express her, herself or her emotions or her love for the, the people she cared for in words and the way that she expressed herself was through food and, and my absolute most um, vivid memories from growing up was these holidays where my grandmother would cook and she would stay in the kitchen the whole time and she'd make these feasts and, and my family, which was a you know 30 25, 30 people and they were you know it was a big family and sometimes they'd get in arguments like any family did and but it didn't matter when, when everyone was sitting down at dinner it was like um, she'd cast a spell over the entire room and it was it was kind of magical and she would stay in the in the kitchen the whole time and she would uh, cook and, and I mean if she sat down for five minutes and ate, three bites of food it was like only because we were asking her over and over and um uh, i think there's something about that experience which really affected me very deeply because that's what i ended up doing for a living so as i as i got older as i got as i became a teenager so i took my first job at 14 and um where was that I, I worked for a cousin. He had an ice cream store. I, I I washed dishes and swept the floor and scooped ice cream and and helped with whatever needed to be helped with, and uh, and then the next year I worked in a hotel kitchen, and, uh, and it was a dishwasher and then a prep cook and then a and a line cook. So these were the days when there it wasn't really considered much of a profession. No, no. And. Um, you know my my parents were professionals and and I don't think for a second they imagined their their son was going to become a cook.
1: What did your parents do?
2: Uh, my father's a lawyer, my mother is a teacher.
1: And what did they want you to do?
2: I uh, know you'd have to ask them.
1: Oh, I, they they so they didn't really impose anything on
2: you. Um you know, uh not like you're going to run the family business, not necessarily no i think they would have imagined that i would have at least finished college yeah.
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> so
2: um you know i think that um that their desire was more generalized of a, of a professional career mm-hmm. you know and, and and i don't think cooking was really considered a professional career at that time
1: so when you were in the ice cream shop were you enjoying it or was it yeah i liked
2: job? it i liked it i liked it a lot um but it was when I went into, the next year when I went into a restaurant that I really just, like, fell in love. Like, the second I walked into a restaurant kitchen, I just fell in love. What
1: did you fall in love with?
2: Uh, it's a great question. I mean, something that's really, really hard to describe. Um, and I understand, like, my first experience of restaurants from the customer end was, you know, so my, my grandmother was the cook and my grandfather who was uh, the most generous person I've ever met in my life. He just, he wanted people to be happy and he wanted to take them places and do things. And he was the most social person. As quiet as my grandmother was, that's how outgoing my grandfather was. He was the life of every party. He was, everyone loved him. Mm-hmm. And he would take us out to, um, to to eat at restaurants. and Sure, I mean, crappy steakhouses. I mean, God knows that these were places that, if I looked at it with my eyes now, I would say, "Well, this is not quality." But, but when I went there then, with the, uh, the, the the dark walls and the, the velour-covered chairs and the you know the oversized menus and, and um, mm-hmm. you know steak and potatoes mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. food, but I would sit next to him, and uh, I would get the, the cherries out of his martini glasses or Manha- <laughs> his Manhattan glasses, and uh, and it was a really really special experience. Mm-hmm. And so for me. As I was growing up, the I really understood the specialness of restaurants in a in a very kind of intuitive way, and and as I as I got older and as I got into the kitchen, um, what what I responded to was this entirely different thing, which was this energy. It was, there was kind of an intensity and a fierceness and a, um, and, a and a sense of purpose that everyone shared. I. I liked the people. I liked that I, I could tell they were all kind of different. They weren't like normal people that you meet in everyday life. Like, like somehow all of the vagabonds and castoffs had been gathered in one place where they were more or less safe and, uh, and cordoned off almost and they were together. But that, that sense of togetherness was, was incredible. And that sense of, um, that sense of energy of of everyone working together to create this whatever this is this dining experience but it wasn't a dining experience they were in service it was like like they were in battle or something and uh and they they liked me because i could clean the um creme caramel molds better than the the other guys so uh the the sous chef who was 30 i was 15 he took me under his wing and this is back in the days when they used to um, they would go to Colorado in the winter and ski and work in the kitchens. And then they go to, you know, the East coast Martha's Vineyard or wherever in the summer and work. So did you uh, do that? No, no. But, uh, but it was a Martha's Vineyard where I lived and what would happen was a whole bunch of people would, uh, would get a house together Mm -hmm. and we'd all work for the summer and, and we'd make money and, uh. I spend it all on, you know, wine coolers or whatever it was, and right. Southern comfort and uh,
1: with all those big paychecks. <laughs> yeah, right.
2: I mean, seriously. But um, and and we'd have fun, and uh, and he took me out to all the parties and introduced everyone. But he was, you know, that kitchen really taught me a lot about what it means to be a cook, and and what it means to be a cook, in, in terms, you know, a professional cook, in terms of um, personal responsibility, and in terms of in terms of community, in terms of um understanding how you you are supposed to behave and and so like i remember one time coming in and i was you know in shorts with my day off and say hey chris how you doing as i was just chef and he's he's like oh hey how you doing he says you used a buffalo chopper yesterday and buffalo chopper which no one's going to know what it is is this this kind of thing it's like a little you push meat through it and it's, there's a blade and it's, anyway, it's very old fashioned and uh, I'm totally dating myself and so anyone under 30 probably never seen a buffalo chopper before but um, but any event, I was really excited. I thought he was going to compliment me because this was the first time I'd ever used it. I was very excited about it and so I said, yes. He said, I want to show you something about this buffalo chopper he brings me over, he opens it up, I had forgotten to clean it and he turns bright red and he yells at me for like five minutes straight. I don't know if you've ever been yelled at for, like, five minutes straight, but it's, like, a long time. So even now, I remember that, like, like very, very clearly. That moment of discovery, the moment where I watched his face kind of turn this very dark shade of purple in this, and he started talking to me, I'd never heard it before, and that was the lesson. It was, like, take care of yourself, you know? Clean up after yourself. I mean, there's one time the chef who was, uh, this was... And, and, and in and, and no way do I condone this. Um, but this was the days where you could actually hit your cooks. Mm. And the chef was about six four, two eighty, 280, and uh, he scared the shit out of me. Mm. And um, I remember, <laughs> I mean, he would do things like, oh, Chef, I can't find the parsley. We're out of parsley. He's like, if I go into that re- walk-in one more time and find something that's right in front of your face, we are in such trouble. And come back two seconds later and just like hurled a f- bunch of parsley at it. <laughs> It's like, if, if I was leaving $5 bills on the ground, I bet you'd find them. Yeah, sure. And uh, and, and so, you know, I would do things like like I learned about, um, you know, I'd break a lobster. Like the first time I was breaking lobster claws, I didn't put a towel over it. And so there was this great moment where, um, he was already very sick of me at this point, and I, there was this like perfect arc of lobster juice um that kind of um right as he was walking it just hit him square on the shoulder and he looked at me with this look of such hatred and he just didn't like his brand new coat. he had just changed it was right before service and i was so horrified and i was like oh my god he's gonna kill me and he didn't do anything he just walked away and and there was this old guy there who had been the last chef and i think he was like like about 800 years old and he was just coming around to just be grumpy with everyone. He walks up behind me and smacks me in the back and he's like nice job and then just walks off. And I was just like, Oh great. And so, I mean, a lot of what I learned in that kitchen was about basic things, organization, cleanliness, um, respect for the people you work with and respect for your own sense of personal responsibility that it's not fungible. It's not negotiable that it, any level of any restaurant I mean this was a nice hotel restaurant people were charging a lot of money but it was crappy food you know, but these were cooks that were really, I mean they could produce 200 dinners you know, there wasn't a big line they moved fast, they moved cleanly they moved efficiently I mean they're professional cooks I learned a lot by watching them and so that was kind of my first experience of what it means to be in a professional kitchen. But i but I loved all of it
0: I oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? I oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie? I oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. But won't you save it, baby, please save it. Come on and save it all for me. You're listening to Pumpkin Pie by the California Honey Drops on Heritage Radio Network.org. Won't you save all your cherry jam? Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. You know, there's no more telling aspect, no more revealing virtue of a group of people having evolved in a lovely way than how they feed themselves, how they entertain, how they put food on the table, what they put on the table. Heritage Radio Network provides the clearest evidence that there's hope for us yet. Heritage Radio's like Fairway Market and that we both care deeply about what you're having for dinner tonight. Heritage Radio Network is not just about food, though. Every time I I tune in. I learned something about things other than food, too. Architecture, design, stuff like that. But from where I stand, I still say, if you can't eat it, what's the point? For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com.
1: So talking about, you know, 280-pound chefs taking a swat at you, is there something to be said for that kind of boot camp Um I mean, there are other ways we know to to treat people, you know, professionally, managerially. Um, But I think kitchens in the old days—I mean, you talk to you know some of the old French (laughs) chefs—you're surprised they're still alive with what they had to go through. Um, And are what are people like in the kitchen today? Are they? Are they? Is there enlightened management? Is there something Is there something to be said for the old tough guys, or
2: so I can tell you i am i I mean, I don't know any top level chefs that don't get upset when something's not right
1: mm-hmm.
2: And I don't know any of them that don't have a problem expressing that in a very clear way. That being said, um, my own personal thought is that, yeah. I mean, sometimes something goes wrong or something, someone doesn't care enough or try hard enough. And that's, that's like, they need to understand, you know, customers come in and they've given us their trust and that trust is sacred and you can't, you can't fuck with it, you know. Mm. But at the same time, um, I would say 99% of our interactions at our kitchen is extremely positive. The best way to train someone is for the managers to take responsibility first. Say, we're going to f- find the right people, Mm -hmm. And we don't always. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just not a good fit. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you just shake their hand and you say, you know, it just wasn't a good fit, but you're going to be great somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they may feel kind of like they failed because that's normal, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. You know, not everyone is right for every situation. And then it's our job to train them properly. And we work really, really hard on that.
1: Well, Let's get into that uh, a little later. I just want to circle back um, because in... in reading a lot about you there is that thing that you went to college and you left college mm-hmm. when you went to college where, what was your mindset because I think a lot of people are out there in college and they're you know they don't know they're, they're there for other reasons where did you go why did you go what did you study
2: well first of all I didn't get into any colleges right out of um, right out of uh, high, high school. school yeah I applied to like I did. I just did a really shitty job with all my applications. I just assumed that I'd get in. I was at a good school. I mean, my my every standardized test, I was like, like the top. And so I'm like, how could I not get in? And I just, I made no effort, and um, I got nothing but rejections. I was like, wow,
0: unbelievable. <laughs> so,
2: so this is what happens when you don't care and you don't try. Right. Um, yeah. And so that was a great lesson. And mm-hmm. I and I took that year. I not only worked in a kitchen, but I worked um, uh, in an accounting department as uh, an accounts receivable clerk. And I learned about accounting, and that turned out to be very valuable later. Absolutely. Um, so, so, you know, it all worked out. And, and I, I learned a lot being in a professional environment, which was totally different in terms of how people interacted and, and really important. Um, and then I went back and I actually did take my um, process very seriously. And uh, and I got in to um, to Duke University, and at that point I was going to college because I was supposed to go to college. Okay. Um, when I when I was a teenager, I mean at first I thought I wanted to be a writer, and then I ended up being a cook. So I, I chose really the two least well-paying professions on the face of the planet. Um, you know, maybe teacher, running close behind. Uh, but I never thought like i 'm going to go into business. I never thought you know that all happened kind of accidentally, and so I went to school um, i studied um, I studied literature. Mm-hmm. I was there for a year and a half. Um, I think I ended up getting an incomplete mm-hmm. and um,
1: so what what drove you out
2: i did not like it i didn 't like the environment i didn 't like the the privileged rich kids mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just didn't like them. I mean, mm-hmm. I was used to being around people who work for a living, mm-hmm. you know, and that's that's what I liked. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I like, yeah. I mean, it's hard to explain, but um, uh, I think that being in the kitchen in a professional kitchen is it's very working class. It's like you go in and you're like a day laborer basically. And I think anyone who thinks that it's you're some kind of like you know artist, I think you're doing it wrong because. You can do anything in an artistic way. If you're laying, if you're you're a bricklayer, if you're a woodworker, if you're a cook, anything that's uh, working with your hands, you can do in a very coarse way or you can do in a very refined way, but it's still a craft. And within a kitchen, there's really respect, there's a humility, there's a sense of hard work and, and loyalty and dedication that I found very, very remunerative and very... It just seemed right to me. And when I was in school, one of the things that I just didn't like is that people didn't take things seriously. I thought that people were kind of jerks, and, and I didn't like being around this kind of elitist, privileged group of people. And to be honest, they didn't like me either. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it wasn't, I, I was probably pretty mutual. Um, I, w- I enjoyed some of my studies and not others. Mm-hmm. I think by the time I left, I was like in a graduate level literature class that was pretty interesting, but mm-hmm. um, I was just in a space where I didn't know what I wanted. Well, you and know, so... you're,
1: you're very courageous because, you know, to go to a place like Duke and say, I really don't like it, and, you know, society puts on you a lot of expectations. As you said, I was expected to go to college, and to, to actually listen to yourself and say I don't like it, it you know and, and just leave did you know what you were leaving yeah I don't know for? if it's courageous
2: or just dumb because I've done the same things over and over and I think I'm just very stubborn maybe I don't know what it is you're but... very
1: successful alright no and I think and, you're in a sense you know looking at your book and you're incredibly fulfilled and being able to, you know, the whole thing with emotion and food—that's one of your mantras. You know, it's wonderful to hear your background and see where that's the wellspring for that is. Um, but so, no one's saying that the path is linear to success or self-fulfillment. So I, I love your story, but the, st- the, the thread I'm hearing is you're very—you listen to yourself. You know, a lot of people don't. And I think that's maybe a key to your food. But Daniel, we were just talking about you leaving Duke. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and is that when you came out to California?
2: Yeah, so when I was at school, I was working full-time. That's the other thing. And uh, I've always worked a lot. I think out of all While of my... While you were at Duke, you worked full-time. Full-time, yeah, yeah. And, why, um, why? Did you need the money, or did you like the atmosphere? I bet you worked in a kitchen. Well, yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> did you was that
2: like your family there? Uh, to some extent, yeah, yeah, and I, it was I met amazing people there, and um, I think in the that, kitchen and, yeah um, I, I, and there were definitely a few people in the school that i I really just loved, but for the most part, I felt more comfortable with the people in the kitchen than the people in the school, but um, I knew that I, I had to make a decision. It's you know, going to school full time and working. Full-time is, you know, in, in a job as, as difficult as, as a restaurant is kind of kind of a challenge. And I thought, I'm young. Um, cooking's a young person's game. I'm going to cook. And so that was that. I uh, went back to Boston for a summer to think about where I wanted to end up. And um, I, I decided San Francisco on a whim and uh, uh, because I knew someone out here. And um, that was it.
1: So where did you work first? Because at 24, you you were the chef-owner of a restaurant by that time. 25,
2: yeah. 25. Yeah, I worked in... That's a
1: very quick, you know, and risky proposition, huh? Yeah. To own and...
2: I think, um, yeah, I think I'm good at Uh, risk-taking. You know, and unfortunately, sometimes those risks don't work out. But I think, you know, what's... What's fundamental to a lot of the most important aspects of, of any kind of success, but especially in a restaurant, is an appetite for risk-taking and, um, and, and acceptance of failure. And, and I've failed a lot at a lot of different things in a lot of different ways, and I keep learning from it. And, and, and I keep thinking, I'm going to reach this point of saturation where I've learned so much that I will stop failing at things. But I don't think it's ever going to be true because, because in, order you, to, yeah. in order to grow, you need to risk. And in yeah. order to risk, sometimes you need to fail. There's no failure. There's no... There's no I, there, a human being has not yet been invented who is able to risk without occasionally failing. And so I think I don't know where that what comes does that do from. To, what
1: does that do to your ego?
2: How I don't really how do you keep have much of one. I have confidence but not ego. I don't have a particularly good opinion of myself, but I have confidence to engage in work that's meaningful to me. And, and it's, it, it sounds very similar, but it's very different. So I think there's two kinds of confidence, let's just say there's confidence to do work, and there's personal confidence. I don't have a lot of personal confidence. But I have a lot of confidence in my ability to pursue work. And I have a lot of confidence in my ability to work hard and to adapt to a situation and to learn from my mistakes. Um, competency. I don't know. Uh, to this day, I'll, like everything, everything that I do, I feel like, wow, I could have done that a lot better. you know. And I think that that voice, that, that um, kind of... Um, uh, that little, that whatever that is inside me that says, like, um, you know, we need to get back in here tomorrow and do it better and better and better. Like, I'm never satisfied with anything, which I think is really probably one of the hardest things about, like, for the people who work with me, it's hard for me to turn that off. And so I think, you know, to your question earlier about, um, about, about the work environment, I think one of the things really important about work environment is to let people know that you support them. If if there's a, a something goes really wrong, discipline that's gained through uh, intense scrutiny, through hard work, and through through diligence towards a goal is really important. So if you're allowed to fail and there's no consequence, then I think you never become a very good cook. And cooks are the kind of people who. You know, we're kind of like Labradors, like our head's a little hard. And, you know, you just need to be, you know, sometimes you do need to be yelled at a little bit to Mm. really understand something, Uh but, but it needs to be situational and not personal. Mm. And I think some of the worst things that I've seen in the kitchen is where a a chef is, has taken a situation where something hasn't gone right and turned it into a personal attack. Mm. And I, Mm. I do not agree with that at all. Mm. Um, I think I respect my team a lot and I have an amazing, amazing team. That mm-hmm. means that sometimes they make mistakes, and we talk about those mistakes. Mm-hmm. And almost all the time, you know, I think that the biggest thing is where someone loses their focus because they just didn't come in mentally prepared. They didn't take it seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And that's where we, you know, really kind of are um, more, present that more energetically. But, you know, I have a chef de cuisine, Andrew Miller, who runs the kitchen. He's better at it than I am. And and we communicate really really well. And at the end of the day, um, I think that it's important to respect your your team because that's like that's everything. You go nowhere without your team.
1: You know, I've done sixty interviews with people like Francis Malmont and, and Danielle, and you know. And I have to say, this interview is unique. In, in one way one real important way I you know when I was reading uh, your book and you go about you're talking about emotion you have know, to have emotion you know and in, in, in your food I, I wasn't getting it and and um, so many chefs have an emotional attachment uh, to a raspberry uh, you know an oyster uh, and and they're compelled and Having gone, I, I don't know, this is about thirty-five minutes, forty minutes into this conversation, your focus on people is extraordinary. It's I can see where the emotion is, and I thought I was going to find it because the food is so beautiful. The food is so exquisite. And um, we haven't gotten to the food yet, but I've never seen I've never heard a chef or engaged with a chef that I saw was so not just um, not just the customer, and the, but with your staff. And not the staff as you as head chef, but from the moment you went into the kitchen, that, that there is an environment. And I, I totally, for all my years of being in the culinary profession, there is something incredibly specia- special about a kitchen. And that's why we call it family food. Um, and you know, in a family, you can be abused. <laughs> And they don't really buck up your ego very much, but you're compelled to be together. And I'm, I'm getting this, this wonderful feeling. I've never gotten it from a chef before. So dedicated to, or not dedicated, but so, so aware of that aspect of, of the kitchen.
2: This has been Dorothy Hamilton interviewing Chef Daniel Patterson on Chef's Story. Stay tuned for next week's continuation of this fascinating interview in which Dorothy delves more into Daniel's book.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on Heritage Radio Network.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization.